0: You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.ainrand.org. Welcome everybody to New Ideal Live. So this is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, the online publication of the Ayn Rand Institute. So we're in this series, we're breaking down the complex issues and events shaping our world in this time of crisis. And we're doing that from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. Uh, so I'm Keith Lockich, and I'm a senior fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute. And today I'm going to be joined by my colleague, Ilan Jurnal. And I'll just say a little bit about the uh, podcast series. Um, and so if you're interested in our perspective on these issues, you can visit our publication at org. That's the home of all of our uh, output on these things. Uh, we're broadcasting on multiple channels, Facebook, YouTube, etc. But... Um for, the, for today's today's event, if you want to ask questions and participate in the discussion, we're going to be taking questions through our Zoom platform. So if you're watching over YouTube or Facebook and you want to get in on this, you can join, um, put the meeting information down here. You can go to zoom.us join, put in the code. I think everyone's an expert on Zoom these days, so I don't need to say more than that. Um, and so today we're going to be Today we're going to be asking the question, is billionaire philanthropy in the pandemic something we should be afraid of? And this was inspired by an article um, that I'm going to put up here. So there there was an article in Vox magazine. These are the trade offs we make when we depend on billionaires to save us. And um, So our discussion today was inspired by some of the things in this. We're responding to some of the things in this article. I think Elon and I both read this and we got really riled up. So I'm anticipating we'll have a very animated uh, discussion today. Um, before we get into the Vox piece, though, um, uh, Ilan wrote an article for our publication, New Ideal, um, that talks about billionaires as being kind of unsung heroes during this crisis. So I'm going to stop my screen share here, and I think Ilan has already joined us. And we're going to talk a little bit about Ilan's article first, and then we're going to talk about the Vox article.
1: So, Hi, Ilan. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. So, yeah, as you said, we worked on that article together. You're my editor. And um, I wrote two articles. One was on the unsung heroes who work on the front line of the healthcare situation, the doctors and nurses and the healthcare workers. And I think they are grossly underappreciated, even though people recognize that they're heroes. The companion piece to that was the unsung heroes, uh, creators of our digital age. And the point I, I brought out, and I think it, it, it really deserves more attention, is that there's, there's another group that's unseen who are doing amazing things have, have been doing years amazing things that we're now relying on to such a degree that it's become invisible. We don't even recognize you just mentioned everyone's become a, an expert at Zoom. I mean, I mean, six months ago, not that many people were aware of Zoom or they, they were still on Skype or something like that. And so the point I raised in that article is that when you think about created our digital age, the company, the, the, leaders and the engineers, everyone from the top of the company all the way down to sort of down to the nitty gritty code and the network administration behind companies like Google and Gmail, Dropbox and Slack, Microsoft, and and their big project now is Teams, right? People are using Teams. Uh, We're using Zoom right now. Our organization relies on it heavily. Uh, And then organizations like Amazon, which is, you know, they have, such a logistical uh, infrastructure, you can get things delivered inside your door in two days notice, whether it's, I don't know that they have toilet paper in stock, one of the kind of things that people now are really desperate to get, but it could be, uh, they deliver food, they deliver books, everything that you can imagine. Um, and it, just to keep all of this going is an incredible feat at the best of times. If you think of all the networks and the, the logistics and just the manpower that, and the mental uh, achievement of integrating all these organizations to create products that, you know, we, we were, a lot of us are running our, our work through, our schools are now gone online. Uh, now think of that when your user base increases by several hundred percent right? night. And the networks, like you think about the ISPs, internet service providers, the people who bring us uh, broadband to our homes, they're seeing incredible spikes in their uh, usage, right? Because we're all online all the time. And um, so when you think about the creators of the digital world, the headline names are the people we are familiar with. Bill Gates, who had the vision of, you know, a desktop computer in every home. And of course we're way beyond that. We have, you know, I'm sitting here with a laptop, uh, an iPhone, there's an iPad just across from here, and there's several more device, There's more devices in our house than people, right? To, so we're way beyond that. And all the stuff that we're using and, and relying on today, like, like these these software platforms like Zoom and Gmail and Dropbox and so on, they're all built on the sort of infrastructure that was created over the last two two decades with the inf- information age and the digital revolution. And all of that is unseen. I mean, there's some acknowledgement that Gates was a big deal and that Steve Jobs was heroic and like a visionary. But if you think about all the other people involved, they're not nearly as well known um, and they deserve recognition. Uh, and, and of course, the other thing that is important to, the, to, to connect it to the article that we're both going to talk about is a lot of them have become incredibly wealthy and they're billionaires. If you think about the big billionaires, there's uh, Mark Zuckerberg, who's created Facebook, which, I mean, I'm sure people are on Facebook a lot more than ever were. Uh, Zuckerberg, Bezos of Amazon, Bill Gates for um, for the whole of the Microsoft era. And uh, you, you, so one of the things that they've been doing is they, they've that's sort of their career, but the the connection to the article is, that it, it's also true that in addition to being what I regard as heroic producers, creators of new value that has enriched human life, um, in addition to doing that, they also are, some of them are interested to varying degrees in philanthropy. And to give you three examples, so the Gates Foundation, which is Bill Gates's big uh, sort of second career, if you will, um, he's promised to open up uh, to support manufacturing of the most promising vaccines to see which one takes us to the finish line mm-hmm. for the coronavirus. And Mark Zuckerberg, who's already spent millions on philanthropy, and has promised to give a lot away uh, uh, when he dies, um, he's given away already 25 million to uh, research. Jeff Bezos, who's not well, all that known for philanthropy, in fact, he, he sort of he's said things about philanthropy like I don't think this is the best use of my time. He's given away 100 million dollars to food banks. Now, my point is not to say yes, I want them to do more philanthropy. I think what's really interesting. Or even that I think philanthropy is a good or bad thing. It really depends on the circumstances and the person and, and their reasons and motivations. But the article that you, uh, you mentioned from uh, Vox is stunning because number one, it, it ignores, which is not surprising. It ignores that whole point I raised at the beginning about how much of an achievement these people have uh, attained in their lives, in their business careers. But then it looks at their philanthropy and it says, wait a minute, there's a problem here. We're relying on their philanthropy too much. There's all kinds of bad things going on here. And so this is now, let me, yeah. Yeah. Let, let me jump in here because I, cause I, uh, so what I appreciated about your article is the fact,
0: so it's, what it points out is the fact that we take all of this for granted. You know, we get so accustomed to using these platforms, you know, once we get all familiar with them and they become part of our daily routine, we forget the amount of work and innovation and genius that it took to create all this, we take it for granted and then we come to view it almost as an entitlement. And at the same time, in our culture, layered on top of the fact that we take these people for granted, is the fact that there's this huge upswelling of, you could only call it hate speech against this class of people. You know, there's this abolish billionaires campaign You have politicians saying that no, you know, that it's immoral for somebody to have earned a billion dollars, you know, so, so you have this undercurrent in our culture, not only do we take their achievements for granted, but we have this brewing, seething scapegoating and hatred of these people, and then into that context steps this article from Vox magazine, so I, I, I wanted to say a little bit about that too, so Yeah. So what the what the article does is it recounts some of the acts of philanthropy that we're seeing at this time, which you summarized. And and it suggests I'm just going to actually I'm just going to put this back up in case people have just joined us. I'm going to quickly share that screen again. So this is the article that we're talking about. It's an article in Vox magazine about billionaire philanthropy during this crisis. and it suggests right at the outset. So it talks about the fact that all these people are do, engaging in this kind of philanthropy. And it says, it says there's something deeply frightening about relying on billionaires to save us during this crisis. And what's interesting, the article notes how uh, sort of how problematic the governmental response has been. And this is something that we've, you know, uh, ARI speakers and intellectuals have talked about this in other webinars. We're not going to talk about the, uh, about all the problems that have happened in our government response to this crisis. But, you know, the fact is that, that it's created a situation where private individuals are really, are, 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 feel the need to step up and help out because the government response has been so ineffective. And, and this article, I'll stop the screen share now. So this article is trying to find something Nefarious and scary about the fact that all these billionaires are are stepping up and helping out in this context.
1: And uh, yeah, did you want to say something? Yeah, I just want to say I, I think it would be worth just kind of breaking out because there's a lot in this article, and we'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, for people to go read it. And if, but so Keith's going to summarize some of the argument in the piece, which I think is helpful. But I mean, for me, for me, the the there's two headline points that are we have to. I think that really leapt out at me. One is a political kind of perspective on the role of uh, um, the sort of the power question. Like, the, the, there's a whole assumption about the, these billionaire philanthropists having outsized power, and there's all kinds of dimensions that are brought up. And then there's a, a, a sort of a related point about sort of the moral perspective on this whole thing, which comes out in the piece. Which I so to me, well, the way part of what integrates these two, and as we'll see as we break down this article, is this is a, a, a good illustration, another illustration of how philosophy is everywhere and bad philosophic ideas are just incredibly distorted. And part of what I think is valuable in Ayn Rand's perspective, which is what we bring as a framework to this, is it helps you see through, through some of these errors and misconceptions and helps you actually appreciate real values in the world that go unappreciated. So maybe we could start with just giving people a summary of sort of the, the key points in the argument.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, for people who haven't had a chance to read the article, you know, basically we've kind of touched on what the basic idea is that um, that they're making the case that in some way we should be, we should be wary of or frightened of billionaires giving so much during this time of crisis. And what is it that's supposed to be frightening about this? Well, It's the idea that in the long term, this is going to, you know, entrench their power, right? So the idea is these billionaires already have too much power and influence in society. And if we end up having to rely on their philanthropy at this time, you know, partly because the the government response has been problematic, is that just going to increase their power even more? And so what the article does, now, I think it's an important question. I mean, I think one of the most important questions that we're going to talk about soon is what exactly is the nature of the power that you know these these billionaires these individuals have so that we'll come back to flag that because that's the most important thing we're going to talk about in just a minute what the article does is it suggests it sort of it tries to break this down and it suggests that there are sort of four kinds of power Uh, the way it puts it is there are four interrelated spheres in which tech billionaires have commanded more plutocratic influence during this crisis. And this concept of plutocracy is something that you hear all the time. You know, Plutocracy is, is it literally means rule by a class of wealthy individuals in a society, right? That's what a plutocracy is. So you see that term get kicked around. And there's a reason, which we'll come back to, why they use the term plutocracy. But so the idea is the article is, it, it tries to claim that there's sort of four kinds of power and it breaks it down as philanthropic power, corporate power, political power, and the power of their personal brands is the way the article puts it. And just very briefly, the idea is there's something wrong with the very idea of private charity from super rich people. The question they want to say is, is it wrong for the mega rich to give to charity at all? Now that seems paradoxical, but the, but. So what is the argument for why they think there might be something wrong with this? And the argument is that these donations, they put it, the way they put it is, are an expression of private power. You know, in, and in my own words, the, the problem here is that they get to decide whether to give, how much to give, which causes to give to. It's sort of, it's voluntary on their part. And the, the way the article views this is that it's, it's unaccountable untransparent undemocratic influence that they have over us and the way they put it is sort of who elected bill gates to be the guy who's trying to manufacture vaccines and you know when jeff bezos gives 100 million to to food banks who decided that these are the best uses of america's resources that's a quote from the article right um, so so there's something you know wrong and suspicious in The the kind of philanthropic power that these people command is what the articles argue. And then they talk about, the article talks about corporate power and the concern that by engaging in all this charitable giving, it's a form of whitewashing, you know, to deflect attention from their alleged misdeeds as corporations you know, so they, they call it charity washing. So how can we complain, you know, so we're, so the idea is that we're supposed to complain about Amazon's business practices and all these, we're supposed to regard them as evil corporations, but how can you do that when Bill Gates is so generous? You know, that, that, that's the idea that there's, that they're, they say this is the reason why we should be concerned about that. Um, Now they talk about political power and there, I think there is a concern about the issue of cronyism. We can flag that for discussion also. And then, but then, the, and then this issue of the power of their personal brands, basically it's their influence as thought leaders. When, you know, when Bill Gates gets up on a stage to say something, we listen to him. Uh, and and they, they're saying, why should they have so much influence? You know, why should we listen to Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos just because they happen to have made billions and billions of dollars? So this is, these are the, this is, these are the kinds of things that the article is discussing. Now there's so much that's, uh, to unpack in, in what I just summarized. Um, so I think we should start doing that. But I think the, the first issue that we should take up, Ilan, is the, the whole issue of power. What do we mean when we say the billionaires have power? And there's a distinction that Ayn Rand makes, which I think is absolutely critical uh, in this context. And it's a distinction between economic power and political power. So do you want to Jump in and, and uh, cool. yeah.
1: I, I believe for people who are interested in her view, I think it, it, the, the, the place to look is in the essay, uh, Big Business, um, America's Persecuted Minority, uh, where this is discussed. And it's a theme that comes up you know, in other her writings. So part of what she's saying that the way people discuss and think about these issues is really uh, clouded by um, the putting together of two very different things as if they're the same thing. And so the two different things are, you're in a business and you create value. So you're, 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 you are you're have a bakery and you sell bread that people want and they line up to buy it every morning because it's so good. And they can choose to buy it or not choose to buy it. And they can go to a competitor and you, know, you have to just rely on providing the best you can and having people recognize it. And the only way in which you can think of that as power, it's you're trading with people voluntarily. Right. That's, and, and that's the only sense in which you have economic power. It's you and, and your customers agree to mutually exchange for it. And this is true of a bakery. It's true. Of if you're a doctor, it's true. If you're a lawyer, it's true. Whatever product or service you're offering, the only power, and even it's true, whatever scale of business you have, whether you're Amazon, whether you're Google, it, it's only so long as people find your product valuable that you have any kind of relationship with them. That's I mean, bit, Yeah.
0: Yeah, just to just to jump in there. So the fact, I think the point that we brought up at the very beginning, the fact that we take these platforms and these technologies for granted, and we come to have almost an entitlement mentality about it, like Facebook, everybody, everybody uh, has a view of how Facebook should be operating. They, They forget that we don't have to be on. Nobody's holding a gun to our head and forcing us to be on Facebook, but we come to have an entitlement mentality about it so that we don't recognize the fundamentally voluntary nature of our participation in that platform.
1: Yeah, and so that's one kind of power, and that's what she calls economic power. And I think you can see that, and there's lots of evidence for, for how it's essentially voluntary. Now, what, what that stands in, in contrast to, fundamental contrast to, what is a, a, a very different kind of power, which is the power of coercion, which is held, that's the role of government. It has the monopoly on the use of force in a given area. And the reason it has that, the reason we think in the proper society, the reason it has that is it has to enforce laws to protect our rights. And and that's, there's a need for objectivity in that. And there's a need for, so government, a proper government is a necessary good. And it has, it alone has the legitimate use of coercion. And it's only against people who, who violate rights. Now, what happens when you take those two very different conceptions and you mash them together and you don't distinguish the two, you end up thinking that because Amazon is so big and so economically dominant in, in so many different markets, its power is like the government's power and that it's in effect, well, I couldn't, you know, Amazon forced me to do this. So Amazon is in this position that's in, in, in people's minds, interchangeable with the kind of power that government bureaucrats have, where they can, they can impound property, they can take you, your, your freedom away. They can regulate you in ways that you don't, you know, you can vastly curtail your ability to function. That's not what corporations can do. They don't have that power of a proper free. And it's bad that government has powers to regulate. That's not a part of a proper system. But you, what happens when people don't distinguish between those two? And it's, it's a chronic problem. It's not just something that happened 60, 50 years ago. It, it's, it happens and it's, it, it's shot through this article
0: yeah i find i find this distinction from Ayn Rand to be so enlightening it's all over the place and it's and it almost so this 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 failing to make the distinction between the power of voluntary production and trade which is the economic power that business uh, businesses and, bus- and individuals in business have versus you know the the coercive power of wielding physical force, which is the government's job and, and it's and it's it is solely a form of political power. You see this everywhere. And, and it's interesting once you have this distinction and you recognize that that it's a mistake to run these things together. It's interesting to read articles, you know, these articles that go attacking billionaires, like this one or other ones, and to see all the ways in which when they talk about companies and the influence that they, they exert and that sort of thing. It's you, you start to notice how they almost deliberately use the language of coercion, you know, in contexts where the businesses don't actually have the power of coercion. So they want to make it seem like like Uber is forcing its drivers to accept certain terms. Nobody has to drive for Uber. People, you know, do it voluntarily. It's a it's a contractual arrangement or we're being forced to use Facebook in a certain way or or. You know, we're being somehow being forced to do things when we buy things from Amazon. Nobody has to do this. It's a voluntary arrangement. And, what, and the influence that they command is purely a result of the fact that we have all chosen to do this voluntarily because we value the services and the products that they offer us so highly. The only reason they command as much economic power in the marketplace as they do is because all of us grant them that economic power by choosing to trade with them and 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 by by benefiting from the value that they've created
1: yeah and that and it's it's illustrative people rarely recognize this but it's illustrative to think of companies that have gone by the wayside so the the so if you think 20 years ago when what they called personal digital assistants like palm pilots some of you probably don't even remember this but palm pilots were a big deal and then they became there was Pilot with a phone, which was sort of the precursor to, to a smartphone, and it was just it it dominated. And then we had BlackBerry with you know the, the little keypad. The people yeah. using them, I know people were obsessed with the Blackberries. Both of those companies, I think BlackBerry is still around. It, it's not a player in the smartphone. It, that's gone. You know, the, it's it's share in the market's really diminished. It's overtaken by Apple and the Android platform. And Palm Pilot is is sort of a, a footnote now in the history of smartphones. Uh, as and now this isn't this is just one example of many, just to illustrate that no company has a position that is invulnerable in to competition from better products in a in a free market. And I think the tech sector is is primarily uh, sort of one of the freest. Um, so let's let's tie this back to the article and bring out some of the other aspects because I think it's. Yeah. It shows how the thinking about this issue of what these philanthropists are doing is just really colored by a distorted view. Yeah,
0: let me. I want to talk. I want to start with one point from the end of the article, and then I want to bring it back to apart from the earlier. So when they talk about the one of the one of the things that we should be afraid of is the power of the personal brands of Zuckerberg, Gates, you know, Larry Ellison, the people who you know when they speak, we listen, and they and they're raising it. Some it's it's. They view it as somehow invalid that why should we, why should we, why should they have so much influence? Well, I think it's really important to recognize that the people who lead these corporations that have been the most successful, that have, that have won out in competition with all the other companies competing in the same space and, and to the point where the leadership, you know, is, is, has um, uh, earned billions and billions in wealth, the reason they've done that there's there's a way in which one of of the things that the article brings up is the idea that their their influence is somehow undemocratic and that really bothers me because as i said before there's a way in which we all vote with our dollars um and the reason we give we vest so much influence in the leaders of these companies is because through the the success of their companies is a result of their business acumen their judgment their leadership they have proven to be thought leaders you know that are worthy of attention and influence their success is a result of their brilliance and their ability and who do we want you know uh, solving problems related to vaccines i think we want people who are brilliant and able and have proven that and so there's a way in which uh, it's, it's ridiculous to, to think that there's something invalid with the fact that these people have, have as much influence as they do when they've earned that influence. They've earned the right to command our attention in the way that they do because of their productive genius. So that's just, just one of the things that bothered me a lot yeah. about the article. Now the, now, the way they talk about democracy, we can maybe come back to that as a separate issue, but...
1: Um, yeah, I just want to build on that point, you yeah. raised because I, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of, I mean, it's fascinating to think about why it is that and this is not the only article where I've seen this attitude of resentment toward, well, why are we making these people celebrities? Why are they on all the TV channels? Why are they, do- why are they on such a big platform? Um, so I wrote a piece a while back on this campaign to abolish billionaires, which you mentioned, and it, it, a lot of the people on that bandwagon have this kind of perspective, which I think is, I, I expect it, at least in part, resentment at the, but I think there's an object, a point here about objectivity. So to your point, another perspective on it is that, so Bill Gates, in his new career as a philanthropist in the last, what, 15 years, has taken serious now I might I might disagree with him on a lot of what he does and I'm I'm not convinced that oh, all the projects are great and I'm I have all kinds of questions about philanthropy. But if you take it on its own terms and you say, well what is he actually doing? He's reading voraciously. He's thinking about these hard questions and he's trying to put the best of his intelligence to solve these problems and he's really has an incredibly sharp mind. And he he's been warning about a pandemic a long time because he knows the literature he knows what people in this field talk about so so there's a as an objectivity issue here which is if someone is actually saying something that has a basis in fact it doesn't you shouldn't discount it because happens to have a lot of money in the bank and this is sort of do that as a prejudice it's to it's to disregard the content and the evidence for it and to vet it based on who you think should be in the right who should have um uh, a view on this, and he, Bill Gates isn't the only one who's been ahead of this uh, in Silicon Valley. And again, I, I don't like the way this article treats billionaires as a class, as if they're all the same, they're all either bad or good. It's just not helpful. But if you think about individual leaders in Silicon Valley now, they were a number of them were ahead of the uh, everybody saying, "Look, we don't want to shake hands." They they instituted, you know, the elbow or the I forget what they did, but they they don't want to shake hands because they take a lot of meetings, and they don't That's know, know what people. Are. Yeah, and and the whole thing was this was well before all the lockdowns, and they were they were just a, a, aware that wait, this could come here. This is a, so there's a real question of um, you have to listen to what people are saying and judge it by the evidence, not because you have pre-existing views sort or of pre-pre uh, set view of well, if they're billionaires, they they must just be power hungry and and, and attention-seeking. You have to yeah. you can't look at and, things that way. That's and a just to build, And just to build on that
0: point. So the article is contrasting this with the idea that, you know, it's, it's our political leaders and their medical experts and that who we should be looking to for information about how we're going to, you know, solve, get a vaccine for this. Well, so you made the point that Bill Gates has been working on this kind of thing for years. Has really, but he also, he, he, he works with the experts. He, I mean, nobody, nobody who achieves this level of success knows everything about all the aspects of the do. One of the things that they're so good at is finding the best people and getting uh, and using them, using their expert knowledge. And what is the, what is the article's alternative? It's that somehow our, our political leaders are supposed to solve these problems. Well, what are they gonna do? What does what Donald Trump or Joe Biden know about anything related to health? I mean, clearly nothing as we've seen in the last couple of months, but the point is a political leader is only, gonna, only going to tackle this kind of problem by getting all the experts involved in, so frankly, I mean, I would be, I, I would place much more trust and much more confidence in Bill Gates' ability to identify the right people to work with and, and you know, solve these problems than any of the cretins who are currently running for political office, <laughs> just speaking personally. It's not, um,
1: a, I want I to, I'd Good. like to move to yeah. uh, the, the more uh, moral or ethical point think is in this article because I think it helps to bring some of these threads together about why that I mean I for people who haven't read the article it's it's really worthwhile to read it with a critical eye and notice the kind of ambiguity uh, ambivalence that the author himself um, exhibits in the piece which I'll I'll come back to but um, the sort of the moral point that I want to bring out which is this is under the heading of how so Ayn Rand's insight is that philosophy is everywhere and people aren't often uh, aware that they are animated by philosophic ideas that are accepted, uh, sometimes unwittingly, sometimes explicitly in various ways, sometimes inconsistent, sometimes consistent, but that philosophy is permeating life. And it's better to be in conscious, explicit, rational control of it rather than being driven by whatever you kind of grab bag philosophy you end up with, which is what I think this article exhibits. It exhibits sort of the conventional view of morality. And Ayn Rand called this, altruism, which means not benevolence or being nice to people. It, it literally means that morality is about serving others, serving whatever it is that is not you, whatever whoever benefits and it's not you, that's the good. And it serves to society. And you hear this in all kinds of ways. You hear it in churches, you hear it in newspaper editorials. It's, it's the idea that we have to give back. And, and, you can, and even these billionaires, not even, but the, these tech billionaires who become philanthropists, I think they themselves are operating on this premise, too. And I think Bill Gates is a, sort of the case in point. Mm-hmm. Now, the way this issue comes up in the article is fascinating because so not only is it that the philanthropists, I think, are trying to live up to this ideal, the author of the article is evaluating them implicitly by this ideal. And what happens in the piece is that you, reckon, you you come to appreciate a point, which is also a, sort of a distinctive point from Ayn Rand, which is that this ideal is unrealizable, it's it's irrational, and it's incredibly destructive. Now she has a, a whole so this, this that's just a sort of a glimpse of her critique of this idea, but I want to illustrate it in the in the context of this article. So the premise of the article is. These, these super wealthy people are giving money to philanthropic enterprises and we're relying on them in the, in the pandemic because they're helping out with all these sort of charitable uh, endeavors. And whoa, wait a minute, there's a problem here and Keith itemized some of the ways in which they see that as a problem, but notice how the this aspect of the moral evaluation of them comes out in the article. So the author of the article runs through what some of these people have done. Uh, some of these super wealthy people have done. Now, At the best of times, these business leaders are not admired, and I think they should be for their achievements in the business realm. But at the best of times, because of the the way altruistic, the the premise of altruism has permeated society, people look at them and think, well, there's nothing moral there, and maybe amoral or immoral, but it's not obviously good. And it's only to the extent to which they become philanthropists that they get some kind of moral credit for what they do. And that's, I think, a part of the tragedy of the Bill Gates story of him becoming a philanthropist. Now, notice what happens in this article. So we hear about um, Gates's efforts with uh, vaccines and his um, uh, uh, sort of bigger picture goals. We hear about Bezos giving money to a food kitchen. We hear about uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg giving money to research. Now, they give that money and then we have, so the first question is, well, they must have some ulterior purpose. They must be trying to get dominance over us they're right. gonna increase their to, power. Yeah, increase their yeah. power and, yeah. and charity wash, right? They, they're trying to, so, and I can't speak for the motivations of these philanthropists and I'm not here to defend them, but I just want to uh, highlight the way in which as soon as they try to live up to the standard of giving back, they're instantly suspect as well. They're they've obviously trying to cover something up or they're trying to position themselves to become authoritarians. And there's no evidence in the piece to to defend this. It's not based on evidence. And in fact, there's even quotes from people who know these individuals personally who say, no, no, this is all completely heartfelt. And I I can believe that. So if they give money, there's an ulterior purpose. If they give money, it's not good enough because, well, Zuckerberg only gave 25 million. Look at his net worth. That's not even close to 10% or even 20%. Why isn't he giving more? And Bezos only gave a hundred million, only a hundred million. And look how many billions he has. So, that, so if you give, you have an ulterior purpose. You're not giving enough. And if you, if you don't give, it's a problem. So Sergey Brin and Larry Page, who started Google, are MIA, missing in action. So what they have against them is they didn't try to, to they're not giving anything. So what happens is that you do, you, if you give back according to this conventional moral principle, you're suspect, you're, uh, if you give back too little, you're, you're, it's a problem. And if you don't give, it's a problem. So there's no way to win. Like there's no way to live up to this.
0: And, and I think that part, and another aspect of this, which also is, is is comes out of Ayn Rand's understanding of altruism and the way it operates in our culture. And then on top of all, everything that you just said, the article casts suspicion on the idea that should they that part that it's even that it's wrong for them to do it because it's it's an expression of private power and the idea here is uh you know altruistic giving isn't something you should choose to do because out of some personal motivation it's a duty and you need to do it whether you want to or not and if you and if you're not going to do it or you're not going to do it the way our, quote, democratically elected leaders think you should do it, then damn it, you should be forced to do it. I mean, what the article proposes as the solution to this horrible phenomenon of all this wealth being bestowed on all of us by, by these geniuses is that we instead of sort of allowing them to engage in charitable giving, they should just be taxed more. So so the the, the billions that they have earned by, through, by the incredible... Uh, value creation that they have engaged in, that we've all participated in, benefited from, and we're the reason why we, we've we given them those billions of dollars through our voluntary transaction. No, that should be taken away from them so that who Joe Biden or Donald Trump can decide how America's resources are supposed to be distributed. I mean, just the, the this, isn't, this isn't the naked expression of altruism, um, you know, and it's so evil and it's so unjust to these people um
1: yeah I think so to me uh, I I I agree with that I think that what I would want people to reflect on is it's so you know we're at the institute we're often writing about the reality of what conventional moral ideas is and to contrast them with a rational perspective which is Ayn Rand's view and and Often when I when I do talks and so on, people have a lot of questions about this because it's hard to question the, the kind of conventional moral view because it's it's so dominant. I mean, if there is a monopoly, if there's a monopoly in, in the field of ethics and it, it, it's owned and controlled by this view of altruism. So it's a challenging thing to to push back on. But I I would ask people listening and watching is to reflect on this, and think about what kind and this is, what kind of moral principle is it? that tells you if you live up to it and give back to society you're bad and if you give too little you're bad and if you give a lot you're even worse because there has to be some some sort of personal angle you're, you're some kind of schemer in it so you're damned if you do and damned if you do don't right so the question there is if it's unrealizable as an ideal Maybe the ideal itself is the problem, and that's sort of the, one of the lessons from Ayn Rand's masterwork Atlas Shrugged. That the, what is destroying the world is not the lack of morality; it's that the people haven't discovered a rational morality. And I think this this is a, such a eloquent illustration of that, where our, you know the, the the productive giants of our society are spending some of their time giving money away, which is incredibly generous. And you might disagree with what they're doing, or their choices and so on, but they're choosing to do that. It's their money, they get to decide. And what they're getting is <laughs> they're damned in every direction. So yeah. this is a case where you have to question the principle and it's incredibly destructive. And I think this is one case in which, that, so that the, the layers of injustice, as you put it, um, toward these productive people it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's really, it's really horrific. So I think we've been going for about 40 minutes here.
0: I think, why don't we, I'm just going to do a quick two-sentence summary of what we've just discussed. And then I'd like to, we would like to turn to Q&A for a little bit. So, I mean, the couple takeaways, I think for people, if you read this article, um, but keep in mind this distinction that Ayn Rand makes between economic power and political power. And again, if you want to if you want her full discru- discussion of this dis- this distinction, um, check out her talk or her article "America's Persecuted Minority: Big Business." There's a talk version that's available on our Ayn Rand University app or at campus.ayran.org, or you can find the article as well. Um, so, and if you keep that distinction in mind, I think it'll you'll have a completely different understanding of what's going on in this article. So the distinction between economic power and political power is very important. And the the way in which we've just been discussing in which altruism dominates our whole moral framework and the whole way we think about these and distorts our thinking about um, how we should evaluate this group of individuals and, um, you know, the kind of work that they do and, and that sort of thing. So, um, so I think those are, are Kind of the key takeaways. Now, what I'd like to do is I do want to put up um, a poll here. I'm just going to share my screen. So we uh, were uh, part of the goal of these webinars is to attract uh, new people who aren't necessarily familiar with Ein Rand's ideas, and I'm going to launch this one first. So we'd like to hear from you if you're if you're joining us on Zoom, um, you can. Uh, answer this poll question Uh, let us know what is your familiarity with Ayn Rand's ideas I'm going to put up another poll at the the time of day for these webinars as well we can we want to find out what is an optimal time although I guess there's a selection bias there because anyone joining us now this is a good time for them so maybe we should maybe we should skip that poll Anyway, should we take up some of these questions? Yeah,
1: let's try to run through as many questions as we can uh, in the time we have. And I appreciate people have posted questions in the Q&A module on Zoom. uh, We'll try to work through those. And I I know there's a lot of activity on the chat. I haven't been keeping up with it, but we'll try to, if there are questions there, either pull them into the Q&A, or we'll try to come back to the chat feed in in a moment. Um, So do you want to pick the first one, Keith? Uh, Let's see.
0: Well, let's go to the very top one. Well, so Brad is asking, how is fear related to altruism? So the the attacks on the business leaders, uh, attacks on these billionaires seems to be based on some kind of fear. Is this related to
1: altruism? Okay. Um, (laughs) I mean, I I think there's various kinds of ways they connect in that um, if you think about the way altruism cues you up to think of other people, um, the, it, it, it's poisonous to human relationships because it, it, cre- it creates two roles for people. You're either a, someone who's sacrificing, giving up values, or you're the person collecting them. And you can imagine the kind of resentment that would occur if you constantly feel like you're the one giving and you're being used and exploited, or you fear that you're going to be used and exploited. Uh, or you're the kind of person who wants to exploit. So there's, there's all kinds of ways in which this is destructive to relations. And think about it in in personal and business relationships. And I think that isn't, there's a natural way in which that would put you on the premise of distrusting people, uh, fearful of people. And I think the idea, but I think there's more to why there's fear of, of sort of successful people. And I don't think it's only fear. And I think some of it comes from a, a lack of understanding of how they're able to succeed and what it is that they do to create value how they use their minds to, to invent new things and sell new things and, and uh, improve uh, on existing products and services. Um, so there is this kind of uh, ignorance that leads to well there's got to be something and I don't know what it is um, Yeah, I mean I think it's this
0: issue it's this, the issue of running together economic power and political mm. power if you think that if you think that somebody who's achieved success in business, Somehow is able to act coercively and force you to do things against your will. Yeah, there's going to be a certain amount of fear there, but it rests on a on a confusion about what they've actually what they're actually capable of.
1: Um, um, so there's a question from Brian about um, is the idea of corporate power in quotes being coercive similar to the idea of advertisements being coercive? Yeah. Do you want to take a crack at that? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that it's 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 part of the same idea. It's the idea that that through that that it the idea that companies who in fact well all the only power that they have is to is the power of production and trade. They they can offer products on a market. They can advertise for those products. But ultimately, uh, we have free will and we can decide what we're going to do or not do. We can control our own actions. But the and. But the idea that advertising is somehow a form of coercion, forces us to buy the products or you know act against our will. It, it I think it it's it's it partly is an expression of the fact that we have this package deal. This this concept is a is a badly formed concept in our minds. And and if we if we recognize this distinction and we keep these things very clearly separated. Um, we won't, we won't be subject to those kinds of confusions. So yeah, I, de- I definitely think it's similar and it, not just similar, I think it's related to that idea.
1: So I'm going to uh, respond to there's a question from Steve, who's asking, so summarizing some of the points we made in the, in the presentation, and he's, a, he's saying, um, so is it the case that the critics are demanding that all charity be controlled and managed by a small number of central planners, meaning government central planners. So are, are these the same central planners? I guess this is ironic or sarcastic. Are these the same central planners who were in charge of preparing for pandemics, such as the one we have now? So that, that was a point you raised, Keith. And I, so I get that, it, I don't know if it's a straight question or just rhetorical, but I think there, there is a very strong push against philanthropy in general, whatever you think of it, and this is a narrative that has emerged in the last year or two. And you can, you can find articles about this that suggests that, um, the sheer existence of philanthropy and the scale of it is a problem. And it's, it's a, and all of it needs to move into government, basically. Like the fact that it, and they, it's represented as it's a shortcoming of the welfare system and sort of the social safety net to use that metaphor. Um, that well, so many of these things are, are going into the private sphere. Um, and I don't agree with that. I think it's co- it's completely wrong. I think there's lo- reasons why philanthropy is bi- as big as it is, and some of it um, is legitimate and some of it isn't. But I, I think the, the whole premise of that criticism comes from the, the view that government and its welfare system needs to be much bigger. And I think that that's, I, I don't agree with that at all. And you connected it uh steve to the, this idea that well our government has been falling down on the job we're we're unprepared and, and and that comes up in the article we've been discussing too but but i think this is so sort of the 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 aspect that i would highlight here is that these kinds of failures are, are in a way not surprising because the real purpose of government is not to be involved in welfare programs and it has a limited function in preparing for pandemics and for protecting us from infectious diseases. But it does not look, I think the way it looks now because right now part of the problem with preparedness is the healthcare system is so socialized. Government is so deep into it that I think if it were freer, there would be different incentives for for private private hospitals and doctors and so on and better organizations and better integration for people to prepare. Um, so I think it is a kind of problem where we, we don't want government involved in so many things. And it, it's certainly not the kind of, and I, and, I would prefer, and, I, and I think in a better society, I think there is a role for private charity um, for the people who need certain kinds of help that they can't otherwise get. But I think they're a, a very small minority. Um, and I would not want it run by the gun because we see all kinds of perverse problems arising through the welfare system. And I think that there's just not enough honest uh, discussion of them. That's a good segue
0: into another question, which, which is relates to a topic that we said at the beginning, we might get into, and I think we should get into it's a question from David about the, can we speak a bit on the potential risk of increased cronyism? Um, so you talked about how the reg- the, the the amount of regulation of the healthcare industry is part of what's created this problem. So I, I think the one concern that people raise when they talk about you know the power that billionaires have is is uh, that, that I think is legitimate is the, the issue of cronyism. But the the problem is is so so the issue is do wealthy individuals have too much power in our political system because they can lobby, they can influence politicians, they can get votes in their favor. Now, but but, but I mean, what I, what I would say about that, and, and uh, you know, if you look um, at New Ideal and other things that ARI has done, there's a lot about the issue of cronyism and what's really behind it. But we, we put a lot, we put all the blame on the on business leaders and business individuals and wealthy people as though they are the source of the problem but the problem with cronyism is not that fundamentally that wealthy people have outsized influence over the political system the problem is that the government if the government is not engaging in the kinds of activities that it should be engaging in that's what creates the opportunity for this kind of influence to distort the proper functions of government so if the so if the government has the power to restrict trade and to control, you know, to, to grant subsidies and favors to one corporation at the expense of another, what ends up happening is it creates this whole system of pressure group warfare uh, where people find themselves that in, a, in, a, in the position of having to compete in this space just in order not to be victimized by other people competing in this space. So the problem of cronyism is the problem, is the, the corruption there, starts with the fact that government has powers that it shouldn't have in the first place.
1: Yeah, our former colleague, uh, Steve Simpson, who who's now with another organization, he, he I think he put it once, the problem isn't money in politics. The problem is politics in everyone's life. In the sense that government is doing things way beyond the scope of its proper function. And that creates all sorts of... Uh, um, opportunities for people to influence government in bad ways, but I, I, would, I would just add one other aspect to what you said, which I agree with Keith, which is um, the, there's, a, there's a real concern I have with um, thinking about billionaires and wealthy people as a class and thinking of it in this, cause this happens in the whole debate about cronyism and, and mm-hmm. money in politics. And it's, it's as if it's obvious what they're their money And it's obvious that all their political uh, orientations are going to be the same and you can't think of people as classes like that as if they're just like they're all the same they're all going to vote and so it's obviously a bad thing if they're going to try to influence politics um and i i think the um the the that kind of collectivizing of the of a group is not helpful in terms of thinking about their views and I mean, for people who are interested in Ayn Rand's view about the this so-called issue of cronyism, I mean, it's all over Shrugged. I mean, and it's a very profound analysis of Shrugged. And what you, one of the things that leaps out at you with, once you get into the story, I mean, it, it's a story, right? So it, it has philosophic dramatization. It's not, um, th- that's not the main reason to read it. So it's a, <laughs> but when you read it, what leaps out at you is, Her analysis of sort of the the kind of business people who are drawn into this sphere when government goes beyond its power and is able to to sort of sell influence. And she distinguishes between productive business leaders who actually create value on their own merits and they don't want any favors, they don't want any handouts. And then the people who are in business, but really what they want is handouts and favors and subsidies. So these are the kind of the cronies the the looters as she calls them, and the producers, and it's a very important distinction. It's, it's I think it's it's helpful for thinking through, uh, and it's hard to apply it in today's world because it's so confused. But it's it's an important distinction morally in the sense that the the motivations are vastly different. And don't and and, and don't think that everyone who because to zero point Keith just because a company is spending money on lobbying doesn't mean that they're trying to get something they. Uh, sort of undeserved it might just be self protection there is that phenomenon too um so we live in a in a in a polluted sort of intellectual space where it's hard to distinguish those but it, those are real distinctions
0: yeah and and the irony is that the politicians because they're viewed as public servants they get a they get a moral free pass on this issue but the reality is they are the ones who are seeking the political power to control all of our lives they're the ones who are really the ones who are aiming to wield this kind of coercive power, um, and yet we view that it—that we 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 are in our culture we we look at wealthy the wealthy people are the ones who are corrupting the politicians, uh, when in reality I mean the politicians
1: are corrupt to begin with. Um, so, yeah. So a, a final thing I think um, it would be worth putting up if you can put your. Um, with the article, we got a question about where to find the article. So this is a Vox article under their Recode um, pro- department or platform, I'm not sure how they think of it. And the the title is "These are the trade-offs we are uh, we make when we depend on billionaires to save us." And uh, we'll put it also in a link. We'll have a uh, show notes about this episode of the podcast web series, uh, and you guys can find it. Uh, I hope you read it. And if you find it uh, illuminating, draw, you know, welcome to send us your feedback. And we we'll always welcome your feedback about these episodes too. So you can, me and Keith online, just to share your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. And if you have suggestions for other things you'd like to hear about, we we'll are always welcome that too.
0: Yeah. So I think that basically brings us to the end of our time here. So thank you all for joining us. Thanks for all the questions, and so I apologize that we couldn't get to all the discussion. There's a lot of uh, discussion in the chat, a lot of discussion in the Q&A. But uh, so we were, we I found this topic really interesting. I get really animated when I when I see what I think is a lot of injustice in the world, and it makes me want to speak up against it. So uh, thank you all for joining us, and um, keep an eye, you know, make sure you register for this webinar series so that you get the notifications.